You're listening to Creative Capes by Future London Academy. Honest conversations with designers, entrepreneurs and innovators. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello, dear future thinkers from around the world. I'm Ekaterina from Future London Academy and welcome to the second episode of, of our leadership series. And my guest today is Furo Johannes Dotteris, Chief Design Officer at HUGE, an international creative agency where she's responsible for the design leadership across 13 international offices. Furo has over 20 years of experience in the digital industry and prior to HUGE was Chief Design Officer at Publicis Sapien and before that spent 12 years at RGA working with some of their best clients including Nike, Samsung and H&M. In today's conversation, we discuss Furu's approach to leadership, how she hires people, and what's the best way to talk to business leaders about design. I hope you'll enjoy our chat, and if you want to see a video version of this interview, check out our YouTube channel at Future London Academy. Enjoy! Hi! Hi! How are you doing today? I'm good! Let's start with 10 rapid-fire questions. Oh, God! All right, let's go! Amazing! Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. Don't think too much. I'll, they're very simple. Say first thing that comes into your mind. What did you want to be when you grew up? Architect. How do you take your coffee? Flat white, espresso? If I have coffee, flat white. Flat white. More of a tea person. See, the, the, you have the Britishness inside you. <laughs> your favorite city or place in the world? It's my farmhouse. It's called Skalholsvik, Iceland. Iceland. Haven't been to Iceland yet, but mm-hmm. on my list. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? Red wine. <laughs> That's a really nice one. Describe <laughs> yourself in three words. Uh, positive, impulsive, determined. Very good three words. I can see how you <laughs> progressed through your career with determination and positivity. The two things that are very, very much needed. Working yeah. from home or office fun? Oh, office all the time. Professional achievement you're the most proud of? Graduating school. <laughs> That's a tough one. What annoys you the most? When people are not uh, honest. Dishonesty. Dishonesty. Mm. Last question. What's the best part about being a chief design officer? Creativity. Love it. Thank you so much. Uh, we are done with, with the speed questions and all sorts of uh, quick rapid fire. You did very well, thank you. So let's go all the way back now to where <laughs> it all started. You are from Iceland and uh, um, I've never been to Iceland. Um, no. So tell me, how was it growing up there? Was there a lot of creative inspiration around? And where did you realize this kind of need for creativity or that you are a creative person? Mm. First of all, it's amazing to grow up in Iceland. It's a, it's a very small community. It's like 350,000 people in the country. Um, so it's a lot of freedom. You know, it's like I was one of those kids that was working, around, you know, walking around uh, the city with a key around my neck and when I was six, you know, and you kind of it's uh, this um, freedom and, and um, that it just comes really naturally. Um, and I think when you have that level of freedom in your life and you kind of are not being watched all the time, you do all kinds of things you're not supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you're for like, example, no one needs to figure it out. No one has to find out. And I think, I think that's really where creativity starts, right? You start doing things and experimenting with things. You know, you know, when I was like very young, I was like building my own um, 
uh, you know, like a captain, like three or four years old, I started to use, you know, you're just like, it's a lot of things. And I, so it's, you kind of, you're grown up in this environment of making and you're constantly in nature and it just, it, it just sparks your imagination. It's really what happens. You're just using your brain to, to imagine things in the world, you know, and, and it, it, it just came really naturally. It's always been there. I love it. And I love that you said that creativity is doing the things you're not supposed to. I've never heard that explanation of creativity, but I'll use it from now on. I think that's yeah. brilliant. And definitely how you can look at what your kids are doing. They are doing creative things. Maybe they're not supposed to do them, but this is what creativity is. Exactly. And brilliant. And um, obviously you since then you worked for all these fantastic companies and you progressed through your career and now you're at uh, this chief design officer which i first of all is a very rare job title to have a c-level yeah. design person and uh, this is what i personally feel like more companies need to adopt and i think the industry is definitely going that direction so it's really exciting that you're at that level yeah. um but i can imagine throughout your career you changed your identity, professional identity a lot. Um, you mentioned you thought of uh, becoming architect and then yeah. you obviously dived into the world of digital and uh, then you were a designer and then you were creative. What different identities did you have throughout your career? What did you feel like you were uh, at different stages? I think what comes with age and experience is confidence. Um, and being more comfortable with being who you are and having your opinions and, and speak up. Um, I think maybe early on in my career, I always had good ideas and I was always open to experimentation. I think it's actually a key thing to do if you wanna kind of um, get further. It's, it's to take a little bit of risk and explore and do things differently than most people think things are supposed to be done. So I think that's, Breaking out of the mold is very important. So that came really naturally. Um, but I think really being able to truly be who you be who you are is is actually like more difficult than it sounds, and it takes courage to do it. Um, so I think maybe how I could frame it is: in the beginning, I was more trying to please others and trying to figure out what people wanted me to do and how I was supposed to behave and and but then as you grow up, you become more comfortable in your own skin and you realize that the things that you have to, to, to say and to show and to do um, are actually really valuable to the business. And, and you, you just have to stand by that. Um, so that's probably my biggest shift, I would say. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I can imagine that's not easy to kind of build your confidence, uh, especially working in a creative field when you constantly judge, you constantly have to prove that that your next thing, your next project is even better than the others. Were there any things that helped you build that confidence? How did you made it for yourself? I think what helps you build confidence is finding the people that you trust to work with you. And I actually think that's really a key. I mean, I was at RGA for 12 years. It was a really long time. But it was because I was in an environment where I was constantly learning and I was surrounded by people who were better than I am. And, and like when you're in that type of environment, it, you're constantly learning, not only by the people who are above you, 
but also to the people that you work with and even the people that report to you. Um, so I think it was very much around sur surrounding myself with talent that made me better. And that's how you build the competence because then you actually start really understanding what great looks like. Did you have that feeling? I feel like when you surround yourself with great talent, or at least that's yeah. what I sometimes experience, you constantly see people who are better than you, then that doesn't really help to build your confidence because you realize that who am I to do all these things and be manager to all these people when actually other people were so good. Did you ever have that feeling and how did you fight it? No, I didn't have that feeling because I feel like my job was to find the talent and build those teams to be able to create uh, the environment and um, do the work that I needed to do for our clients. And, and I think, you know, you have to have that confidence. You know, you have to have the confidence. My confidence is that I'm actually really good with finding great talent. And, and you asked chief design officer, what do they do? You find the best talent. You have a point of view on design. You know where design stands and where it's going. But it's almost like a curation job. Yeah, I mean, the, let's talk about this chief design officer for a second, because uh, as I said, it, it, it is a very unique title. And um, being at a sea level is not mm -hmm. easy at all. Um, do you remember, so it was a publicist saying that you were promoted to chief design officer. Yeah. Do you mm -hmm. remember how that happened? Like, mm -hmm. what was the feeling that you got from it? Okay, I made it. I'm now C-level person. I can, I don't know, retire. <laughs> no, no, it didn't feel like that at all. It was, uh, I mean, sometimes the reasons you get promoted is because your boss leaves and that's exactly what happened. Donald Chestnut was my boss. He was a fantastic create, creative leader and still is. When he uh, moved to another company, uh, um, I got promoted into my role for uh, EMEA um, and international. I didn't feel like it was like a holy kind of like, oh, sh oh, wow, man, I really have to figure this thing out. It was more like, okay, I have to lean into this. What does it actually mean? Uh, how do I have to change my actions or do they actually change? I think the one thing I realized was that I needed to have a really clear point of view on the industry more than ever before and I needed to communicate the role of design within Publicis Sapient and we leaned into that the team um, really early on because you have to inspire your talent to stay and you have to have a point of view on those things so that's maybe the key thing and then there is another piece of this um, that I don't know if people realize but great creative leaders are actually great uh, business leaders <laughs> because we understand business. And sometimes I think about my role as, you know, designing the future of businesses. I mean, that's really what I'm doing. Um, and why wouldn't I do it for the agencies that I work at, you know, really defining uh, the business, what we're going after, you know, why we're doing it, how to be differentiate, uh, and what is our role in the world. And so you have to kind of start operating at that level as well, you know, when you go into that role. But that's just like learned by doing and applying the tools that you have learned all of those years when you're working with your clients to yourself. That's interesting that you mentioned the whole business side of mm -hmm. uh, being a creative because that's exactly what happens when you get further and further along in your career. You have to understand the world of operations, of finance, yeah. of uh, all the other departments that work in the company, whether it's your client's company, whether it's your own company that you lead. Um, I can personally say it's not something that is easy to learn. 
how did you learn that and where did you learn it? How did you pick up all this understanding? So operations is something that you, I actually like it. I mean, maybe that's weird, but I, I like to look at the business and see how we're doing, how we could do things differently and, and all of those things. So um, a part of it was always an interest, I guess, for me. And then you just kind of have to lean more and more into it as you grow up uh, in your career. I love that you said that you love operations. That's actually my secret, can I say, guilty pleasure. I'm mm -hmm. for some reason obsessed with operations and logistics. I can't explain it, but uh, that's something maybe it's, you know, our brain is structured the way that we as humans actually get pleasure from putting things in the boxes and arranging things in our brain. So we get our like happiness hormones from arranging things and when yeah. things fit in. Uh, and I think I just maximize on that. So it's interesting that kind of operations is something that you drawn to as well. But where, how did you physically, like when you're in the boardroom with other CFOs, other board members, what would you say um, you maybe changed or learned throughout this kind of um, be being in these meetings that um, kind of helped you to be a better leader? Were, were there any particular things that you had to change about how you talk or how you explain design that help you to to actually have better conversations i think you have to develop emp empathy for the roles that people are in you know it's like my job is to make sure that the creative output and the quality of the design and the craft is at the highest level that has a really interesting tension sometimes with finance <laughs> you know, so you know so there is definitely so you need to develop that kind of empathy for the other side of the business. Um, but also like, I think in the boardroom, you need to kind of put those things forward and you need to talk about them and figure out, okay, where do we dial up and how do we dial down or um, do we change the way we work? You know, how do we actually make sure that we all win? Um, because in the end of the day, um, the product is the creativity and the output and the outcome of that. Um, but it also needs to be, um, it also needs to be making money. Uh, so I think having the empathy for everybody in the room and really understanding their challenges and try to work through them to make it work for everybody is, is kind of the key in, in those board meetings or in those big meetings. Um, and I also just like have a little bit of fun, you know, sometimes we workshop through things and apply some of the design tools that we have and, you know, go into smaller groups and do things. So like, you know, um, I guess um, going back to this idea of just using our own tool set to operate a business, you know, because if you really think about it, it is a design challenge, like I said earlier. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned empathy. That's something that uh, we've been talking a lot recently um, as, as kind of main skills that obviously any designer needs to have. But mm. Funnily enough, any business person or any entrepreneur or any uh, manager or leader needs to have, mm -hmm. which is, uh, but it's also one of the most difficult skills to acquire. Um, and you also mentioned design tools that you use as part of kind of understanding challenges or business mm -hmm. challenges. Are there any particular ones that you found, uh, let's take the most, uh, I suppose, um, uh, polar example of if you have a conversation with a CFO and definitely your opinions are very different on a certain matter and uh, how would you go about um talking about it or solving it you'll set up another meeting you do a workshop with uh, can you give a bit of a glimpse um 
I think you solve problems by having open conversations. And I think you have to, there needs to be an honesty. Creating an open and transparent work environment is key um, to everything. And if you're not gonna be able to have an open dialogue about this, I think it's actually just that. It's the empathy and openness. I think those are my tool, that's in my toolbox. I'm an extremely honest person. And sometimes it actually shocks people, but like, it. it you know, it's really good to know where the other people stand <laughs> and being able to kind of talk about the issues up front is, is the only way to solve them. Yeah, honesty, I think, and, and directness is something that um, coming from a, being Russian, I, <laughs> I, I inherited and had to adjust to a, a British working environment. Uh, were there any, like, with this approach of honesty and candor and kind of directness, uh, were there any situations where you had to dial it down or kind of rethink your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, like, when I, I'm Icelandic and we're quite open and honest there, but like, where my, career really kicks off is, is in New York City. Um, and New Yorkers are extremely kind of direct and, and, you know, some people think borderline aggressive. I actually disagree with that. I think they're extremely um, friendly and open people. Um, so uh, it was actually okay in the US to be like, to be like that. Um, then I moved to Stockholm and it's much, it's a very different environment when you live in a culture like um, uh, I did when I was in Sweden, because then it's, it's more consensus driven. So like I could walk into a room in New York and make decisions with my team, just like be like, okay, no, you know, I'm gonna make those decisions so we can just keep moving because it's all about speed in the US and just get stuff done. And that's how I learned. Then I come to Sweden and that's more, much more about inclusive comes uh, in, uh, being, you know, in, uh, just everybody as a part of the decision making process. It doesn't really matter what level you are. Uh, so it's a lot of consensus and that becomes really difficult when you're just used to like walking into a room and just make decisions to all of a sudden you have to talk about everything and, you know, so that becomes like a whole different thing you need to learn how to do. And I can just be very honest about that. It took me a while, you know, I was like, oh God, this is, this is very different. And then you moved to uh, the UK and I just didn't understand what the British people were saying. I was like, do you like it or you don't, you know, I, I, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, I'm not quite sure. I'm like, because they used the English languages in a really well, different way. They're more like passive in their approach and, and so you're constantly learning. So I wouldn't be as direct to a Londoner or like a UK person as I would be to a New Yorker because I just, it doesn't work. So you have to kind of learn every time you move into different cultures, you know? And, and, and I think when you have done that a few times, um, you start kind of looking at the people coming from the States coming into Paris and you're like, uh, can't talk to French people that way. You know, it's like, so it's very nuanced. Uh, so I've definitely had to kind of tweak and, and change the way I am. Uh, but I think everybody that I work with knows that I'm very direct and, and like, that's the one thing that's just sort of just a big part, part of me. I have a hard time changing it because, but because I'm a foreigner, I think people have kind of just like adapted to it and actually kind of, um, accepted it. 
But I, try, I do try my best. You have to fit into the culture that you live in <laughs> or you work in. That's a great comment about moving across the world and, and different cultures. Um, and I have to say, we do get uh, a bit of a um, uh, excuse because we are foreigners, so people can actually adjust to us uh, better, yeah. uh, which I definitely find very, very useful as a tool as well as obviously we observed many more different cultures so we can see a different approach yeah. uh, so i i personally think them being multicultural is some massive advantage that any creative or any person can have yeah mm -hmm. um uh, and uh, talking about because you mentioned a couple of things that kind of very important for you as a as a manager as a leader um mm -hmm including empathy, you talked about understanding different cultures, you talked about yeah. directness and candor. Uh, what, what's your general philosophy around leadership? Are there any other things that you feel like personally important for you, not for every leader, but like for you as a, as a manager, as a leader, like something that you stand by and like important key points? I think it's important to be present as a leader. Um, and it's really hard because you have to, you know, when you, when you, you, when you work in a large organization, like it's hard to be present for everybody, but I think it's very important to be approachable, like, um, and that people trust you. I want people to be able to come to me and talk about their issues. Um, because I think the leadership role has changed quite a bit. I think now it's much more about, you know, servicing people and actually help people i think that's a really big part of my job is to help other people succeed and um so listen i think listening is is, is a key thing and i i honestly have never had to listen as much as i've had to do for the last 12 14 months simply because of the situation in the world and it's been and i have learned so much because yes i'm a woman but I, you know, I'm not black, you know, it's so you, and there was so much dialogue around diversity and inclusion and, and you have to sit down and listen. And then you have to really figure out how I'm going to, how are we going to work through this? How are we going to create a more inclusive world within agencies? And how are we going to actually make all of this stuff work out? And, and to me, that is very important, you know, listen, and take action that is a great advice and starting with listening and not taking action i think that's the step that a lot of people skip kind of diving straight into fixing things and um and i'm just like just just doing things rather than listening first and definitely when we talk about cultures i think that's a it's a very important skill to have to actually uh pause for yeah. a bit and listen um that's fantastic and you kind of mentioned the the team in the last year and um, I can imagine it has been very challenging for all people and for teams yeah. and for creative teams. Um, first of all, how did you motivate yourself throughout this time when there is a day where you seriously don't feel like it? <laughs> you just, you, you, you don't have any energy or patience or are there any things that you do to get yourself out of bed or get yourself more productive? <laughs> I try to exercise. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's honestly like, it's the number one thing for me. It's like exercise and, and try to eat healthy uh, and sleep. I like sleep is like a thing that I need to do to kind of stay sane. Um, and then one of the major things I did, uh, when London went to lockdown, I actually left the city, uh, or I went to Iceland just because I, I just couldn't imagine being locked inside for such a long time. So. 
those are kind of the major actions that I've taken, I think, like uh, for the past um, year. But uh, it's been hard. And like, and I think we need to have a much more honest dialogue about what's been going on. Like, we thought that we we're going to leave our office, office desk for like maybe a couple of months and come back. It's been, you know, a year and two months. So it's been a really long time. There is a major burnout happening. There is some fatigue. It takes, it, it just, just, you use different kinds of channels in your brain when you spend 12 hours a day looking at the computer screen. And it's exhausting to a point that you just feel like there's nothing left of you when you're done with it. So, you know, I think what people need to do, and I'm not good at this, to be honest, we have to build routines. We need to change the way we do meetings. We have to cut it down and, and um, take more breaks and take your holidays. Don't just keep working because you're not going to be going to like Mexico. You know, it's like, it's okay, okay to take a break and just stay wherever you are and read a book, you know? So I think, um, I think last year has been extremely hard. I think we're all seeing it. And I think we're going to see the consequences of this past year and a half. It's going to be a year and a half at least for a really long time. I think people are like physically and mentally completely exhausted. Yeah, I feel your pain and I definitely, um, agree with all the points that you said about zoom fatigue and and just staring at the screen the whole day i love i used to love meetings uh, now meetings is a slightly slightly yeah. different procedure um and uh, yeah exercising and um, staying healthy is always a, is a good way to keep a bit more sane um but talking about your team because you mentioned i mean part of obviously it is keeping yourself sane, put your own oxygen mask first. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, then also you, you do look after people, you do look after mm -hmm. the team. Are there any rituals, any ways that you figure out if, if you, you can motivate your team, if someone is down, if you feel like your team is losing energy, are there any things that you saw help? I have to be honest, I think it's really hard. Um, um, because people are working on projects with different deadlines. I think the only thing you try to do is to give advice and, and then let people know that if they feel like they're not getting um, the space or the room to survive, that they should flag it to you so you can actually help fix the issues, you know? I think the most difficult thing for people has been when does work start and when does it end? Because you're at home anyways and you have your computer next to you and you're not going anywhere, you know? <laughs> it's like, I could as well do this thing. Uh, I could as well just keep working. Um, so I wouldn't say that I've been actively, I do talk openly about this when we have meetings, try to do that on my one-on-ones. I really try to check in how people are doing. I encourage people to take holidays and vacation days. And I think then, you know, are the meetings that we can skip? Can we start cutting down to 25 minutes? We always get five minutes down below, you know, in between. I think there are ways to get around it. Um, but in the end of the day, I think the only thing people can do is to draw a line. And a lot of people have been afraid of doing that. Um, but draw a line. You have to draw a line. You have to make people know that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna start working at 5 p.m. and then you start working at 5 p.m. And so I think it's the only way. And I'm just giving people advices that I'm not even so good at myself, but you know, we all try. <laughs>
I think that's all we can do to try yeah. and be our best selves. But um, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's not easy. And especially when everyone has a lot of stuff that they are dealing with um, in their personal lives or anything else, it becomes even even harder as a any sort of manager to to help people. Um, yeah. I wish there was a recipe. I wish I wish there was one thing we can all no. do. But I suppose it's always listening uh, is and uh, yeah, just just being there for people um, is a way to do it. Um, and uh, talking about difficult things and, mm. and difficult, um, I suppose, moments. Um, if we forget last year, we can pick an example from last year as well. But in general, throughout your career, uh, a very very successful career, but still, it's uh, every day is a mm. struggle, <laughs> and I can imagine. There were days that were very hard, probably the yeah. hardest, where you had to make incredibly tough decisions um, on a personal level or on a professional level. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any of those decisions that you had to make that were very, very difficult? And what was your thinking process when you had to make that decision? It's really hard to say what's work and what's life. Uh, meaning that I think one of the bigger decisions that I made in my career um, was to leave New York. Um, and it was by no means an easy one, um, because it's really weird about a place like New York, it becomes such a big part of your identity because you identify as a New Yorker, you're kind of raised up. I feel like New York raised me up in a way, even though I was raised up in Iceland, it, it formed me, it actually formed me and, and, and made me the person that I am. And I remember you know, leaving New York City and I was going through the process of deciding to move back to Europe. I felt like I was leaving like at least half of me behind and I would have to rebuild me completely from scratch. Um, just because it was such a big part of my uh, social network, my professional network, just who I was, my DNA. Um, so um, that was a professional decision. Because, you know, you don't know what happens after that. Uh, U.S. is a very big country. You can have an amazing career in the U.S. It's a lot of opportunities. And I was like moving to Stockholm, you know. Uh, so I really had to, and I, I, it took me probably two years, two, two to three years to, to rebuild um, my identity. And then you become, oh, oh I'm, an, I, I'm, I'm a global citizen. <laughs> That's kind of my identity right now. I'm a global citizen. I'm not a New Yorker, I'm a global citizen. Uh, so um, yeah, it's um, that was a really difficult journey. And why did you make that? Like, I can imagine at the beginning of the process, you're still considering and kind of listing your pros and cons, or I don't know what your decision process is. What was the thing that you're like, okay, I, I have to do it? I was afraid of becoming American. <laughs> uh, that was that was one of them um i didn't really quite see where the us was going and from a from an innovation standpoint I, I could actually see the opportunity and like i think i was sensing that the us wasn't quite on the journey that i had been on and i was like i had been in new york for um 12 years when 11 or 12 years when i left and i wanted to see the world outside of it you know because when you live in New York and you work the hours that you have to work when you live there, it's not like you just take a train to Paris or you go on a flight to Italy in an hour and a half and you just go snowboarding in the Alps. 
it's uh, so I was kind of curious about the other side um, and what was actually happening in Europe and and I wanted to try it. I wanted to live in a European um, live the European lifestyle, I guess, instead of um, working so hard. It was on, on, on all the time. I mean, it was hard work and um, it is it is very hard in New York. It's like it's really funny because people think sometimes they're working hard somewhere else and I'm like, nah, you haven't seen it. <laughs> That's a different level. Wow. But, but you learn wow. Um, yeah, that, that sounds tough and also a very difficult decision to make. And I, I suppose with decisions like that, you never know if it was the right one until the years go by and you're like, okay, I survived. So you moved to, you made a decision, you moved and you mentioned that it was quite hard to adjust a different country to a different city. Uh, can you talk a little bit through the emotions and kind of what did you feel in that moment? Have you ever doubted the decision that you like that you made the right choice? And how did you get yourself out of that, I suppose, slightly negative state uh, into the, the good life? Yeah. I moved from New York, which is always on, right? It's like 24 seven on. You can walk into a theater, you can get your nails done, you can have a massage, you can like have a drink, you can it's just constantly open and your friends are everywhere. It's really easy to get out, like get around. And then I moved to Stockholm, which is a very different culture. You know, you, if you want to buy, you know, uh, if you want to go out to the brunch, it's very few places that serve brunch. And if you want to go and have dinner, all the restaurants close at 10 p.m. And if you want to have a spontaneous drink after work with your colleagues, they don't do that. They actually need to plan everything. You need to plan stuff. and. It's just a different culture and it's um and I felt like because I'm so used to living a very spontaneous life and, and making like decisions on the fly and just you know I'm not a planner. And then all of a sudden you're living in a place where everything needs to be planned. And I think I just had to work my way through it. And um and then I, I think what I did was, you know, you just ch keep challenging yourself, going back to this idea of challenging, you know. Um, I went from Stockholm to London. I did a lot of business in Turkey. I spent a lot of time in Istanbul. And I, then I started to think about it differently. I was like, okay, now I'm on a cultural journey. Now I'm just going to try to figure out how it is to work and live in different places and, 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 and you know, be an expert on that. <laughs> and then that becomes a part of the DNA and you start enjoying that journey. I love how you talk about your identity and kind of DNA of a person because I feel like we can all relate to whether we moved countries and cities or whether we changed jobs or any sort of life circumstances that happened to us. Uh, we, we all attach to what we think we are. Yeah. And it's very difficult to change that attachment. Um, and for, for me, for example, when I stopped doing creative work and I essentially became a founder who doesn't doesn't do any design anymore. Uh, I kind of lost the identity of a creative director. And yeah. that was the hardest because I think that what I was supposed to do my entire life. So I think it's quite interesting to see how how you try to find new identities when you lose your previous one and kind of constantly keeping your mind open there. Your identities will change throughout life, even if you dreamt of being an architect. Yeah. from the age you were, I don't know, four and um, 
kind of developed into the architect your entire life. What do you do when you retire? <laughs> there will be a different identity. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a big one, right? It's uh, I'm actually glad I didn't become an architect. You know, I think like uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's been such a privilege to work in an industry that is still defining itself. You know, um, because architect is you know, of course still defining itself, but it's not like the type of work we, you know we were doing in digital back in um, you know 2000 2001 when it was just like really trying to experiment and figure out what the internet could actually do. And, and now it just keeps going. Now we're going to virtual worlds and it, it's almost like you're, um, you're always inventing something. And, and like, that is an amazing part to be a creative who can invent stuff through digital um, medium. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and we started talking about the team and the kind of the, the leadership aspects. But I think one also, another interesting part of uh, the, your dimension of assembling the teams is um, actually picking the candidates and choosing who is right for, mm -hmm. for the job and um, for, for your company in general. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any personal principles that help you when you meet someone to, to see if they're right, apart from their brilliant portfolio and whatever is the qualifying criteria? Yeah. Um, I always look for the personality. It, it's, I mean, and I think all of us that do, but I, I think I've made some crazy bets on people that didn't show great portfolios. Um, just because sometimes you can see something in the rawness of the work. Um, so I think, first of all, looking for people and personalities that have a particular kind of open mindset. You might see that they're not afraid of just saying something stupid, you know, which is like not stupid, but like something that maybe is not expected. People that do and say something unexpected, like talk about ideas that are never going to be made. You know, I think there is something in that that I really love. Um, and then, you know, seeing the rawness in the talent, sometimes the craft isn't there, but the idea might be amazing or the way they talk about stuff, the passion that they bring into the conversation is a great measurement of what type of person they are, you know? Um, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer in hiring any young talent and give people opportunities because someone made a bet on me, you know, and it's like, and I honestly didn't have a great portfolio when I was hired in. So like um, seeing the potential, um, but I think you have to dig into mainly the personality, the open, openness of that person. And, and also just, uh, there is kind of a level of risk taking that I admire in the best creatives, uh, not being too precious, not think about it too much, kind of um, get a, be a little bit more, you know, gut feeling kind of a creative. Um, those people get actually really far, you know? So I, I, I love that, but I, I really look for, for those kinds of key ingredients. Do you remember the weirdest, like most surprising candidate you hired for, I don't know, for the most random reason or for the most unexpected um, kind of path? Uh, that is a really good question. I think there are a couple of people that come to mind. Um, one of them came in, um, it was in Stockholm. It was actually with a, a design degree. Um, his, he, he had really 
wacky ideas like um nothing was really really well kind of refined it was like not like really brilliantly executed but it was just the personality and i remember hiring that person and he's i think he's a brilliant creative and he's an amazing designer uh, and he lives in london now i hired him in stockholm so i feel like his career took off and and then there was another one that i interviewed in in uh, in uh, new york and back then we had we had people pitch to us um ideas when they came for interviewing and he pitched uh the empty retail store um and i remember being like yeah i want to hire him because i and you you know you know what he means quite bold instead of going oh here's the user journey and here are all the things and here are the screens and this is what we can do it's just like oh it's an empty retail store and you're like okay i get that like and that person has had an amazing career. So it's just fun to uh, hire people that come in with, uh, you, it's almost like you make a bet. You're just like, I'm mm. gonna make a bet on this one. Oh, I love it. And I love the idea of someone very clearly communicating an idea that, again, can resonate with people. Because I think that's one of the the key, I suppose, skills for any creative person designer to very quickly communicate something that other people understand. So when you said empty, empty store, I also got it. So I think that's, yeah. a, that's a great way to actually look at something. Um, and uh, talking about hiring, what's a no-no? What is for you a red flag? You see someone and you're like, definitely like, we can end this conversation now. <laughs> I think it's when people talk about me and not us. Mm. Um, it's uh like there is nothing we even make our on our own yeah it's like when you work in this industry and you work in creativity like it's a team of people that make things happen and i think when people like talk too much about it's me 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 and not us i think it's a red flag in a way that i'm like oh are they going to be good collaborators are they going to be pleasant people to work with um that would be one flag that i have and then if people complain a lot about their <laughs> current employer, it also raises a flag. I'm like, well, you might be very unhappy at your current job and we all get it and it happens to everybody. Um, sometimes it's just a phase, sometimes it's a constant thing. But um, don't take it into the job interview, you know, uh, because it just sends the, it sends the wrong energy into the conversation and it actually makes you think, oh, is this a, is this a half, you know, glass half empty kind of person? Um, and that has happened too, when you're just like, <laughs> I can't, I can't take the risk. I can't, even though the portfolio might be brilliant. This is an individual that might be really, really hard to work with and might pull down the whole team from an energy perspective. So you just have to consider that. But the, the people who are self-obsessed and um, the people who are negative towards cur current situation. I couldn't agree more. I think those two would be also red flags for me. So that's um, definitely yeah. good advice. Uh, anyone listening, don't do that ever. Um, um, great. And well, I wanted to kind of finish off the conversation going back to kind of the idea of your career and um, kind of the, the leadership experience that you have. But let's talk mm -hmm. about mistakes for a second, <laughs> because uh, I'm sure throughout this time you uh, you didn't figure out everything straight away. Uh, yeah. Do you remember any misconceptions or biggest mistakes you made as a manager or leader and 
uh, kind of, yeah, how did you go about fixing them? I think the mistakes that you remember are the projects that failed. You know, mm. sometimes it's like, um, it always happens <laughs> that something doesn't go quite the way they were, were intended to, but I'm not going to mention any names or talk about the projects, but I remember a, a couple of um, projects that I've done that were beautifully executed, like beautiful, like from a design perspective, absolutely gorgeous. From um, a dis like an idea and relevance and connection standpoint to connect with audience, complete failure. And um, and I think this was when I was a little bit more junior and I kind of knew I was trying to execute something that was perhaps um, a half-baked idea, we can say that. Um, and it launched both of those projects. They were absolutely, like I say, absolutely amazing uh, from a visual design perspective. Um, but I think what I learned from those is like to speak up when I know that it's the wrong path um, I was one of the creative leaders, but I was not the creative director. Um, I should have said something, you know? Um, so that's definitely a failure. Um, other failures is just big failures. I mean, uh, enormous failures. Um, and that might be when um, you're just, I think one thing, let's not call it a failure. Let's say I'm gonna talk about it as a learning. Uh, there is something that I've learned as a creative leader is leader in this industry, and I would encourage everybody to to think about this. You have to really be sure that you love the people that you're going to be working with when you take a job. And uh, I've been in situations where I have taken a job, and my gut has told me mm, maybe not going to work out. It is right. It is a very tricky situation to be in from a career standpoint and from personal health is to be in situations where you're not completely connected with the people that you work with on a daily basis. Um, so that, that's been a big learning, the really big learning. And it takes a few failures to figure it out. <laughs> and when you say the people, like, would it be a client that you just don't like? No, or? people that you work with, like uh, if your business partner is someone or like mm. your creative partner, which is, mm. I've never had problem with my creative partners, by the way, they've always been amazing. Mm. But um, you just have to be very considerate mm. um, when you make those decisions, uh, because it's all about the day-to-day -day health of the working environment. Mm. And um, so I would just really encourage people to just work with the people that you love, even though you're going to get a little, a little less paid. I would rather do that after my learnings than going after a better paid job uh, and work in an environment that doesn't really celebrate who you are and give you the room to grow. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a good, good learning. And um, all comes down to people at the end of the day, the people you work with. Uh, the empathy from you to them and their empathy to you and uh, the more enjoyment you can get from those relationships the, the better the work will be at the end of the day so um, yeah we all humans at the end of the day no matter how much technology we use we all humans no you have to you have to and I mean it's actually like yeah in my previous interviewing cycle, like it was one of the most pleasant ones, you know, when you just meet all of those amazing people and you're like, okay, uh, 
because it's it's really about uh, sharing values, you know, and, and that's in the end, that's where it needs to come from. It needs to come from uh, that. Fantastic. Um, I feel like we are running out of time, actually. So I have one last question to ask yeah. you. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you could go five years back, Mm -hmm. uh, so at that point, you were already, again, very well established, uh, already very good at, at what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you could still give yourself a piece of advice that would save you a lot of time, energy, stress, whatever that is, what advice would you give yourself? I think it's work-life balance. Um, it, it sounds a little kind of obvious but it's really hard to execute. I think oftentimes when I look back specifically after the pandemic and the life we've had for the last year and, and a bit, I think I was always on the move. I was always jumping on planes because I thought it was absolutely necessary to go and do that and that and that. And sometimes I was literally just in the air. I didn't see my team for maybe three weeks a month. Get the balance right. Like it's just not good for anyone. It completely ruins you. Um, so I think maybe self-care and self-love is something that I would kind of give us an advice for that. We have to take care of ourselves first and the job is second. Yeah, very relevant for 2021, uh, mm. taking care of ourselves, our minds, our bodies, um, and our lives. Um, so thanks. That is a great piece of advice. And thanks, Fure, for joining me today and uh, everyone who, who, who learned a lot. And I definitely really enjoyed this conversation. Um, by the way, if anyone is not following Wonderful Huge Inc. yet, uh, definitely do that. They share incredible and fantastic work. But um, thanks, thanks for staying with me and answering all my questions. That was a fantastic discussion. Uh, thank you so much for the invite. I really enjoyed it. And uh, as you all know, Fira will be one of our uh, teachers at the executive program for design leaders. Uh, so I can't wait to actually dive deeper into all the secrets and experiences that um, she had throughout her career. And uh, I can't wait for to meet everyone who will be attending the program as well. But for now, uh, thanks again for joining and thanks, Fira, for being with us um, this evening. And uh, follow FutureLine Academy for more interviews like this. And until next time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to join one of these interviews in the future and ask your questions, follow us on Instagram. We are at Future London Academy. We are doing live chats weekly with some of the most inspiring people in the industry. So prepare your questions and see you there. If you want to learn from these people about how they work with clients and approach projects in more depth, join one of our courses at Future London Academy, taught by the best of the best in the world of design and innovation. And if you're ever in London, come in for a coffee. We love meeting new people. Thanks again and until next time.